they were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right, down the line, it may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! Go crazy! Now, here's Stephen Maggi. When you cover sports teams, you learn very quickly how important the PR guy is. And I was fortunate enough to start with one of the really best. We actually worked together originally when I was in college. His name is Jerry Walker. And he's the public relations director of the San Francisco 49ers from 1981 all the way to 93. He's now the team archivist and really just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the 49ers. Jerry, well, to bring us to the, what it was like, you come up, this is your first pro job, you're coming in. You didn't have any idea that you were going to bring a championship to him, did you? It's funny you should say that because people that I know around the team and that we all joke about, it wasn't Jack Reynolds and it wasn't... Fred Dean, and it wasn't uh, Joe Montana and all those people. It was Jerry Walker joining the team to kind of start first Super Bowl championship. Uh, and that's a joke. <laughs> that's where the canned laughter should come in. So, no, we we were hoping that we could, you know, be 500 that year. It was uh, Bill had come in in 79, and they were 2-14 and 14 in 79, and they were 6-10 and 10 in in 80, so they were kind of making, you know, improving a little bit every year, but then we went crazy in 81, and we were 13-3. and three. Yeah, I remember it, and it was exciting to be in the Bay Area at that time, because the year before, the Raiders had won the Super Bowl, and really, the 49ers up until 1981 were kind of a franchise that really kind of struggled a bit. I mean, they had a long history, and there were some great players in there, but this was the first sign, really, of, of greatness. They came close a couple of times, I know, in the early 70s, but by, by and large... And this was Bill Walsh, right? Because you come in, like you say, they're 6-10. and 10. They were thinking maybe make the playoffs at that point? We actually weren't aiming at the playoffs when the season began. When the season began, Bill seriously wanted to um, just improve on the 6-10 and 10 from the previous season. And if we could be 500 or more, we were going to be happy with that. We, we really were. I, I heard that spoken many times in the early season. You know, we started that year, we lost two of our thir- first three games. And then we only lost one more time the rest of the season. Right. It was it was an incredible thing because I remember just a couple of years before, guy we knew from our college days, Steve DeBerg, was a guy who Bill Walsh used to say was just good enough to lose. And but yep. who knew that Joe Montana, who he had a storied career at Notre Dame, but I don't think anybody could have foreseen what ended up to happening for him. No, it, you know that that was remarkable, and and you're exactly correct on Bill's quote. Bill, Bill said at a press conference, well, Steve's just good enough to get you beat. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh. To start one and two, you know, no one, I promise you, no one outside of our locker room, outside of our facility thought, well, these guys are going to be Super Bowl champs. 
Right. But then the big turnaround really came against uh, Dallas at home, right, where they were handily beaten by the 49ers, and that just was something that didn't happen. Exactly. And um, I had a, my career began in sports information at the college level, and I worked at LSU before coming out west. And um, at LSU, we, uh, we got along well with the writers, as most PR guys do, and one of the, one of the writers from, from my LSU days became a, a major writer for the Dallas uh, Morning News, Gil Lebreton. And, and Gil, uh, after that Dallas win at home, Gil came to me in the press box and said, man, you guys were lucky. <laughs> I said, what? what are you talking about? He said, you guys were lucky. I said, I said, Gil, I hate to use this against you, but look at the scoreboard. <laughs> what do you mean lucky? So, and he said, well, I hope we get to see you again in the playoffs. I said, I hope we make the playoffs. Right now we're aiming for 500. But this year was a pretty good jumping-off point to beat you guys the way we did. The convincing point that that season was going to be special actually came when they were in Cincinnati. I remember it and watching it on TV, and the Bengals were really good, and they ended up playing them, of course, in the Super Bowl. But that was where they go into Cincinnati and they win. That kind of erased any doubts, didn't it, that this was just a fly, you know, a lucky season or anything like that? I think, yeah, I think we started building and building. You know, the, the tough loss later on after the starting one and two, the tough loss was I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area as a big Browns fan, and I was joking with uh, my wife, Jackie. I said, I don't know who to pull for this weekend. She said, you got to be kidding me. Who pays your paychecks? And I said, well, <laughs> I was joking when I said I don't know who to pull for, but it's going to be a tough thing to, to watch my Brownies get beat. She said, you're going to enjoy it. Well, I didn't enjoy it because the Browns beat us. And, and yeah, turning – turning things back around. Then we started, after that Browns loss, we started a little win streak, including that, that game at Cincinnati was big, and it was real big for Bill since he was a former Bengals assistant coach. Yeah, he kind of, um, not resented it, but he, he thought he should have been the heir apparent, and I'm sure they would agree with that right now. He, I think he was the heir apparent. I, I hate to talk bad about Paul Brown. It was actually a, a plus for the Niners that ended up being perfect for the Niners, a wonderful thing because when Bill got passed over for Tiger Johnson, who used to be a 49er, when, when Johnson was hired instead of Bill, Bill was kind of in shock and was really uh, really anti-Cincinnati Bengals at that time. So when we came back and beat them during the regular season in Cincinnati, it was a big win for Bill. And then, of course, when we beat them in the Super Bowl, it was even a bigger deal. Yeah, no question about it. Let's run through the playoffs, and then I want to really talk about Bill Walsh, the person. But that started out with the New York Giants, and that was no guarantee. But I remember being at Candlestick Park that day. There was a certain excitement that I hadn't seen on that side of the bay. I'd seen it on the east side for certain games and so forth, but never there. And, boy, you know, there was just a, a thrill there. And that was when Lawrence Taylor was there, right? But Bill figured a way to stop him. A guy named John Ayers. John Ayers had maybe one of the best games ever as a lineman. John Ayers, was, his, his assignment was to block Big Lawrence. And he did, boy. So they win that. They go They go back there. It's in Detroit, probably the worst place to hold a Super Bowl at that time, you know, because it was in the, the – <laughs> remember the weather back there, uh, Jerry? I, I, I went a, a week ahead of the team back there to get the hotel ready and set up television and radio interviews and things back there, and – I slept in my, our hotel lost its power, lost its furnace the, the, the night I checked in. I slept in my ski jacket all night. It was just unbelievably, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Ohio, so I kind of knew a little bit about that weather, but Chicago weather with that wind whipping off the lake, 
that was ugly. That was really that was it was like we we bemoaned it if that's the proper terminology <laughs> that we make it to a Super Bowl and it's not in Miami, it's not in New Orleans. Where is it? Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. Well, that was the first time they really did that, right? Get it went out of the Sun Belt. That was I think that was the first one they held. Yeah, and you know, thank God. I mean, they've they've held a couple out of the Sun Belt since outside, but thank God we had the Silverdome to play in. Yeah, exactly. Or would have been a would have been a mess. And you know, the one thing I remember about that game again, Cincinnati comes in. Most people were thinking that they were going to win because you know, Forrest Gregg, the coach, and so forth. And you know, this was the 49ers' first time in. And one thing I remember was that great stop by Danny Buns, a guy that you don't even think of him anymore, but just an incredible stop. And that kind of was one of those again turning moments, right? Exactly. It was. It was definitely a turning moment in that game. And Bunzo. And his wife have a, a ranch slash farm up near Rockland in Roseville, up near Rockland, where the foreigners used to train. And they grow lavender. Ah. So this, this this big old bulky defensive lineman, I mean <laughs> a, a linebacker, makes a big, huge stop, a game-winning stop. And uh, and what does he do now? He's he's gardening lavender. Wow. Now you notice we missed the Dallas game, and the reason was that was almost as important to Bay Area fans as the Super Bowl win, that beating Dallas, finally getting to the Super Bowl, and that's, of course, the game with the catch. And there's just so many special things about it. Do you think back on that game a lot? Yeah, of course I do. That game highlights and and highlights of Dwight Clark's catch, and I mean that's used so much in Sports Illustrated and on television that that game always reflects in my memory. And at that point, you know, we we were just hoping to win a playoff game uh, and then when we get to the championship game, it's like, oh, my gosh, we're a game away from the Super Bowl. We weren't even talking about winning the Super Bowl. We were just talking about can we get by Dallas. I mean, Dallas is such a – you said it correctly. I think when you said it, it was almost as big or – and I add, or bigger than the Super Bowl itself. Yeah, it was really something, you know, the, the great, and uh, we, we certainly miss him, Dwight Clark. Uh, that's going to always be his place uh, in sports history. Everybody will always know about Dwight Clark. Exactly. And then what people don't talk about is Eric Wright's catch of a, of a Dallas Cowboy from behind, and I think he may have actually horse-collared him, but it, but it caused a, you know, stopped a, a big touchdown for the Cowboys against us. And then the fumble, Lawrence Pillars and Jim Stuckey, those guys were involved in a, in a fumble and a recovery. That game's won actually by, I always joke with uh, with Ray Wershing, we call him Mo, Mo Wershing. I always joke with him about uh, that his extra point actually gave us the edge in the yeah. in, in the scoring column. You know, I'm glad you brought up uh, Ray Wershing because if anybody remembers that season, they remember in, in every game that was on because the 49ers were starting to get national attention. It was the idea, he doesn't look at the goalpost, right? You know? No, no. And it's his, his, his words to Joe Montana, the holder, were always, help me, Joe, help me, help me now, Joe, help me. And it was like I asked him one day, what are you, what are you telling Joe out there in the field? And I'm asking him for help. I said, why? Because I don't like to look at the goalpost. So I was like, that's how <laughs> um, <laughs> many kickers don't look at the goalpost? No, it was great. It worked for him. He was a, a pretty reliable kicker. Very, very reliable. He he played it played ball at Cal. He was a star, a leading scorer for several years, I think. 
let's get into the character of Bill Walsh because sometimes it's real easy for people that weren't around him and so forth. And I know you were close friends with him, uh, and I had some some dealings with him as a member of the press and. He's thought of as a genius. This idea, though, that he was easygoing, boy, is that wrong. I remember him at Stanford. If he lost a game that he thought he shouldn't have lost, that was one angry guy. And you had to be really careful what kind of question you asked him or he could just jump all over you. Yeah, I've seen that side of Bill. I I have uh, his daughter, Elizabeth, is an artist. She's in L.A. now. And we always joke when we get together about how many times her father fired me. (laughs) <laughs> always hired me back but he fired me five times so you felt his wrath i didn't realize that yeah he was he was an excellent guy to work with and, and i had i had had some some other coaches that were uh, charlie mcclennan and lsu who was a mr easygoing guy until they got beaten and so i i had a little bit of experience in that regard but yeah bill bill was he definitely winning at all at was was the number one goal was winning. You know, it reminds me a lot of Vince Lombardi. I had sp- spoken to Lombardi's uh, biographer David Moranis, and one of the things he said is, you know, well, these players hated him and loved him at the same time. And I kind of got the same thing feel from Walsh, where boy, he could get on you. I remember guys would miss a tackle, and he just would just berate him. You know, you'd see that once in a while. <laughs> But they didn't miss it again, so it worked. So, so Bill's Bill's um, approach was, he, yeah, he would get on players from time to time, but more often his wrath was felt by assistant coaches. If he wanted to get a, a defensive lineman's, if he wanted to get his attention, he would get, jump on Coach McPherson, the defensive line coach, or he'd jump on Sam White. Uh, well, he was offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, but he would jump on you know Chuck Studley. He'd off. He'd get on one of the defensive coaches, and he he would just like berate them, and that was so so that the players would get the attention, he'd get Bill's attention, and and not be, not feel like he was always coming down on them. But occasionally, yeah, you you could see it overflow into the player himself. You mentioned coaches, and boy. I was as getting ready to talk with you. I was doing a little research and it brought all this stuff back. And I'm looking at how many coaches, including a guy like John Gruden, who's you know coaching the Las Vegas uh, Raiders, and you know, I just mentioned him because they all have this connection to Walsh, Mike Holmgren. Exactly. I, I when I think of John Gruden, I think about when he was a an intern with us, a graduate assistant almost in, in style, and he would sit outside the the coaches' meeting rooms. And I'd come around the corner of that hallway, and I I knew he'd be sitting there, and I'd always pretend like, oh, oh, oh I almost fell over you. What the heck are you doing out here? <laughs> and, and then I'd laugh, and I'd say, yeah, I know. You're sitting there picking up knowledge because someday you're going to be a head coach. And he'd say, that's right, J-Dub. Keep moving. <laughs> well, you know, one person we both knew from San Jose State had told me before I even really knew who Bill Walsh was. I, I, I knew this was before he was a 49er coach. I knew he was an assistant in the league and so forth. But Bob Bronson, who uh, coached him there, said, this guy's going to be good, and he's going to be one of the all-time greats. And he said, you could see that with him from the point when he first got into coaching. Even as a player, he just loved the game. And, and I, I guess all the coach, the great coaches, and you've seen some that have followed him that have been great too, they all just love the game, right? Because how else? Well, you mentioned like Gruden. Who else is going to stay and do that for 15, 16, 18 hours a day? Exactly. And Bronson, that's a Hall of Fame you're talking about there. What, what a great man he is. I think Bill may have coached under him after Bill 
was a player at San Jose State. When he, when his playing days were over, I think he maybe coached with Coach Bronson at, at San Jose State. Yeah, and it's it, you know what it's funny because the last time I saw Bob Bronson was sitting up. I, I was covering that game, that that famous game with the Cowboys, and. Boy, he couldn't have been prouder. He was sitting, he had a nice seat in the stands, and he could not have been prouder. It was, you know, I guess he had Dick for, Dick Vermeil had worked with him, too, and this was just like his life's work coming out in the big, big time. Yep, yep. Mine, too. I couldn't have been prouder. I was really happy for you because I, I know that it's a dream, right? I mean, you don't have to necessarily be suited up or even one of the coaches. When you get a, in an organization like that, you feel a real part of it. Oh, definitely. And and Bill always treated everyone like they were a big part of it. You know, it was it was never like, oh, you're the PR guy, you'll you'll do this. It was like, you know, congratulations, we won another one. Not not I won another one, but we won another one. He he not only had this great Hall of Fame lifestyle, so forth. I mean, you look at his records, incredible. But this guy changed the game because I really think this whole West Coast offense really changed the game from what it was before that. Oh, it definitely, it definitely did, and that's why so many of the coaches from Bill's tree spread out and took the offense with them, and, and then made a little a change here and a change there to make it their own offense. But yeah, the West Coast offense definitely changed the game. I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up near Cleveland, watching the Cleveland Browns, and you know that was give the ball to Jim Brown and get out of the way. Um, yeah. Where the West Coast audience was, you know, people would say dink and dunk, but Bill had a, you know, a formula. We'd run one play. And if you're sitting in the stands, it's like, what the heck? Why did we run that? Well, we come back with that play, then the next series or something, that's a touchdown. Well, wasn't he the first guy to really uh, map out the, the first 30 plays of the game or whatever? I think it was 15 plays, and now it's like up to 25 or 30, yeah. And now everybody does that. And it seemed like the 49er team that Walsh built and then kept on really had like great personalities. Did you find that? Did they all seem like they want their team players? Definitely, you know how you, you talk about a team supposed to be a family, and, and you talk about a forty-nine family. It really is, and it really was back then. I remember sitting in the office overlooking the practice field when we were in Redwood City at Seven Eleven Nevada Street in Redwood City, and and I'd see Freddie Solomon staying after practice. Practice is over, and he's out there catching balls with Jerry Rice and showing Jerry how to catch it, pull it in, tuck it, protect it. And they were out there. They'd be out there working till dark after many practices. And it's like I said, said to Freddie one time. I said, Freddie, joking, but I said, you realize that you're teaching this guy to take your job. And Freddie said, exactly. We need. We're a family. I was like, wow. Yeah, that's that's really something. And that's I got the idea that Walsh and then afterwards Seaford and stuff. They weren't going to put up with a guy like like most of the great teams. They're just not going to put up with somebody that won't buy in, regardless of whatever their talent level is. Was he sort of that way? And secondly, was he also one of those type that if you had to make a move, it's better off to get rid of somebody earlier than before they really uh, conk out, as opposed to you know keep them around one year too late. You're right on target on both those. Uh, yes, he was the type of guy. Uh, and and actually, that how you explain that just now is almost verbatim how Bill told it me one day. I said, "Well, we're, we're considering getting rid of him, yeah, Jared. It's always better to get rid of a guy sooner than later, because if you wait too long, it's, it's going to end up hurting you." And he learned. He said he learned that in the Cincinnati days with Paul Brown, but he was definitely a, a, a guy that what wanted to to share share the wealth, if you will, 
and give people credit all the way down the line. And, and yes, yes, I'm, yes, I'm both, yes. Go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. You can hear bonus content from this conversation soon, plus a number of other great sports stories. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.